Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we expand the conversation on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Vanessa Gonzalez, and I'm coming to you from beautiful and somewhat snowy Washington, D.C. And like we start off every show, we've got the Pod Squad. Woo! <laughs> we have the amazing Monica Simpson, Executive Director of Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Hey, Monica. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, everybody. It's so good to be here. The amazing Miss Tina Chen, President and CEO of Times Up. Glad to be here. And of course, welcome back. The one and only Miss LaShawn Warren, who's Executive Vice President for Government Affairs at the Leadership Conference. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. In this episode, we're going to talk about the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration. So everyone, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here and glad you. to be talking about this topic. Oh my God. Yes. It is a welcome relief. Uh, we are here. I know. We, here. we survived it, okay? <laughs> oh my God. That is definitely a note. We survived 2020. We survived it. We survived oh the God. last four years. Last four years. I know. You're right. You're right. Well, before we jump into the conversation, let's go through some of the things that you may have missed since you last listened to the pod squad. So as we said... Biden-Harris administration, everybody is safe, sworn in, we're good to go. Within his first day and continuing up until last night, we have a slew of executive orders coming down. And so some of these executive orders are to correct some really bad policy that many of us on this podcast today, many of us who we work with, and many of you out there have dedicated your lives to fighting. So here's some good stuff. Last night, we got an immigration executive order, which required a family reunification task force, looks to create a pathway to citizenship legislation, introed by President Biden last night and signed on national TV. So looking forward to see what that task force brings forward. We know a lot of you, particularly immigration advocates, know what you need, know what you want. And so we hope that this is a door open. We have a racial equity first time where it is looking to rescind discriminatory housing policies, ending DOJ contracts with private prisons, y'all. That is huge. Combating xenophobia against AAPI communities, strengthening relations with Native American tribes. That is giant. Now, we're still going to work on making sure detention facilities and the privatization of those contracts is gone. But again, all of this is a step forward, right? We can start moving in the right space. And then census requires non-citizens to be included in the census and apportionment of congressional representatives actually sticking to what the census and constitution say. For COVID-19, we're accelerating vaccine manufacturing and delivery, directing the Department of Education and Health and Human Services to provide guidance for safely reopening schools and child care providers. Whew, I don't know about you all. I have an eight-year-old. Oh, this is great, but I want it safe and sound. As America is facing multiple crises, crises, the COVID-19 pandemic, record unemployment, particularly for women, particularly for women of color, calls for real reform to justice system, climate change, and you could just keep going and keep going, not to mention undoing the harmful work of the Trump administration. What should the Biden administration be prioritizing within the first 100 days? Let's go with Miss Tina. 
in addition to what you just cited, Vanessa, you know, the pandemic, an economic crisis, racial justice crisis, you know, I've been saying we've got a fourth crisis, which is a caregiving crisis, right? Mm. You know, 2 billion women have left the workforce. We have women's labor force participation at the lowest level since the 1980s, right? We are undoing decades of progress that we've made. And one of the predominant problems is the lack of caregiving and paid leave, right? This is the structural problem we have had now for decades that the pandemic and economic crisis has exposed across the board. We're the, you know, one of only two countries in the world without any form of national paid leave. We entered the pandemic with that. We didn't even have sick leave until there was some like emergency sick leave patched together for some workers, but we don't have a permanent policy at all. You know, we don't have infrastructure for caregiving that provides not just affordable childcare, but also affordable elder care and in-home care, keeps our seniors out of congregate nursing homes, which we now know are not as safe for them as being in their own homes. That gives caregivers a fair wage and brings them into the formal economy and protections. Those are all things that we need to address and make sure that People can go to work and have access to care for their families. They can have self-care when they need it for leave. And that's going to help women and everyone succeed. We just issued a report from Time's Up from our research in Impact Lab and Time's Up Measure Up, where we took the Biden proposal of a $77.5 billion investment that was part of the Biden-Harris campaign proposal and ran it through the economic machine. Lo and behold, what we all know is if you make that kind of investment, that 2 million jobs every year, so 22 million over the course of 10 years, will be created. And you will create $220 billion of economic activity every year when you make that investment, because investing in caregiving is what we need to do to build better jobs, build a better economy, to help us recover from this. So I'm excited because just before he was inaugurated, President Biden actually talked about the need to build a care economy, right, and invest in it. So they've taken the first steps in that $1.9 trillion rescue package. We are looking forward to more permanent policies and structures in the recovery package to come. Thank you for that. I'm hoping one thing that we all learned during this pandemic is how vital some of those caregiving pieces are and how vital the women, I mean, it's majority women, thank you men out there, but it's also majority women, women of color, immigrant women are to the basic infrastructure and economy of this country. It's ridiculous. And it took this for people to finally acknowledge it. And so now let's really continue to push for that policy that backs up all of the complaining we've all been doing on Twitter and Instagram about having to watch our kids for, you know, 24 hours a day and how we miss people and our teachers. So Excited to see that policy. If I could just jump in to reinforce what you just said, which is we all have to fight for this. So there's a tendency right now that the election's over and President Biden's in office. And I've been hearing it from folks who said, "Okay, I can sit back. And donors are saying, I can sit back. It got done. It doesn't happen. And he cannot do it by himself. We lived through this in 2009 when I was in the Obama White House during the last recession. And in 2009, that is what happened. Everybody thought, "Okay." we're done. We can go home. He's going to fix the economy. He's going to pass the Affordable Care Act. He's going to do all these things. It doesn't happen without all of us out there, advocates, people on the streets. We've got to stay as active to push through the policies that we want as we were to get people elected into office. It's absolutely critical. And if we go home, the other side doesn't go home, by the way, right? They are there all the time. We need to be as present. We need to be talking to our elected officials. We need to be loud about the policies that we want to see enacted, even with good policymakers sitting in places like the White House. 
100%. Yes. Thank you for that. Love that. I'm going to kick it to Monica, who is an amazing leader in the reproductive justice space. Monica, can you tell us a little bit about what Sister Song is, school some people on reproductive justice, health and access, all of these things, which I know you and I have talked about numerous conversations throughout the years. Oh, and I yes. love <laughs> And I love following your lead. But tell us a little bit about that. And then what should the Biden-Harris administration be focusing on for the first 100 days? Wow, there's just so much. There, literally, there's so much just is like flowing through my like <laughs> up right now. But I just want to say really quickly. But for those folks who are new to this term, reproductive justice, you know, this movement has been my political home for well over a decade. And what really attracted me to this work is because it was one of the first movements where I found the ability to bring all parts of myself together. There wasn't the place where I felt like I needed to separate one part of my identity here and another part of my identity over here. And so for us, reproductive justice is the human right to be able to have the children that we want in the ways that we want, to be able to parent our children in healthy and safe environments, to be able to prevent and end pregnancies without shame and with dignity. Ultimately, it is really about the human right to bodily autonomy, to be able to self-determine our own lives. That is really at the root of the work of reproductive justice. That's what we fight for every single day. And so as we have just seen what has been so much that folks have had to endure, you know, over these past four years in terms of our sexual and reproductive health in this country is absolutely insane. And so stepping into this new administration, we're not stepping in with rose-colored glasses, but we are stepping in with great intention to really move the policies forward that we know will give our communities and our families what they need to be able to live their best lives and to thrive in this country. What is real? And let's just, you know, talk about what is real in this moment around Please. our issues. COVID has definitely highlighted so much, right? Like, I mean, we know that this global pandemic has taken over our lives, but it's also highlighted so much around our work. When thinking about abortion access in this country, I mean, the ability for people to still access abortions in the middle of a global pandemic, that was a different world to navigate, right? And to make sure that people were safe and still had what they needed to be able to do that. And so that just continues to highlight the need to remove all the restrictions that we have from the abortion bans that tried to take over the South last year to the global gag rule that we know that more progressive administrations definitely take on, you know, very early. And we're glad to see the Biden administration moving towards those things. But we also know that the Helms Amendment, these things that have been in place for decades are just long overdue to be taken away. We need to repeal these things in order to make sure that more access to abortion care in this country, to safe and accessible abortions is what is the norm in this country. It is a part of our health care. When I think about maternal health in this country and the Black women are still dying at a rate yes. three, four, five, six, seven, eight times higher than white women in this country, we have to understand that the COVID crisis highlighted that even more and just put even more of a barrier for folks to be able to get access to the prenatal care, the postnatal care that's necessary for us to have healthy pregnancies and for people to bring home their healthy babies. And so this work is critical and it is something that we have to make sure that this administration is centering if we're talking about moving forward an agenda for health care for all in this country. We have to also not think about the ways in which racism in this country, white supremacy in this country shows up on police forces, right? But it also shows up in the medical system, right? And these have been huge barriers for communities of color when accessing healthcare. So this is major. And also when we think about the nine-year-old sister I just cannot get the images out of my head, right? When we think about the need for our communities to be safe and for us to really think about how police brutality, state-sanctioned violence, so many ills are still just ravishing our communities. It is not 
okay. And I refuse to have another situation where we have to raise up a name of like Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or all yes. the folks that unfortunately we've lost. And so this work for us, when you ask the question, Vanessa, about what should this administration be focusing on first, for us, we don't come at this work from a single issue lens. It is important for us to understand that we live whole lives as individuals. And just like my sister Tina was talking about, you know, we have to look at all of these things on the table at the same time. And this is the time for this administration to understand intersectionality. Maybe they need to get a book from Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. <laughs> yes. And get it together and understand that this is not the time for us to pick one issue over the other. All of these issues are important for us to be able to live in this country in a way for all of us to feel safe, for all of us to have access, and for all of us to be able to continue to live the lives that we want to live. Ooh, Snap where's my sign? Where's my poster? <laughs> <Yeah>. my- <laughs> I'm tired of having to pick a part of my life that is more important than the other. My whole life is important. So yeah, that's what I'm asking this administration to do. And that's what we're going to be holding them accountable to. Ah, thank you, Monica. That's amazing. Thank you. Ms. LaShawn. First of all, let me just say an amen to everything that both Tina and Monica have said and snap it up for them. I agree with everything that they've said, but let me just start by naming the fact that we have just gone through a very traumatic four years and it has been devastating and it will take time to address all of the fallout from COVID. And I think it will set us back for years to come. But let me also name that I slept so much better after January 20th. It was life-changing for me. And I will say also that never again will I take competent governance for granted. I am just grateful to have an adult in the White House and don't have to worry about the bullying and the name-calling. I am just really grateful that there is competent governance now. And as Tina has said, we can't rest on our laurels. Like this is not the time for us to say, we've got someone in the White House who we know will look out for our interests. We have to push. And our work has only just begun. And I know that 2020 was difficult, but there's so much that we need to do. And not just on one issue, as Monica said, on multiple issues. And when you look at the state of things in our country right now with 26 million people who have been infected by COVID, almost 450,000 people who have died. It is shameful and it makes me very angry because it was preventable. There were things that could have been done to curtail the spread of this virus. And so I think the Biden administration in terms of prioritizing the spread of COVID in terms of stopping COVID and combating that is certainly the right thing. It is not the only thing that they need to do, obviously, but There is something very comforting about having a leader who sympathizes with the plight of other people. It's fortunate for us to have decency and respect and compassion brought back into government. And we need to name that. And we need to also hold officials accountable who are not that way, who are indifferent to the pain and suffering of other people. I mean, we need to have leaders who see the wrong and try to do whatever they can to make it right, who see suffering and try to heal the hurt and who might see a war and and try to stop it. Like we want those kind of leaders in place and we need to make sure that that is affirmed through positions that we take, when we walk into the voting booth, all of those things. I will say in terms of all of the things that President Biden has done so far, like I am encouraged by it. Obviously, there is a lot more to do. But as Tina said, like we have got to continue to hold folks accountable. Yes. Particularly when you think about the insurrection on the 6th of January, it was so unsettling. 
I hope we never see anything like that again. But the fact that there were Confederate flags flown in the Capitol is so appalling to me. It is toxic and damaging. And I think we need to hold those officials accountable who actually encourage that kind of behavior and also those who voted to challenge the certification of the election. I mean, that is completely problematic and counter to everything that we believe as a democracy. And to that point, there is the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that is going to be going through Congress. We have to support that, right? We have to give people the ability to elect a candidate of their choice who will look out for their interests. And right now, the backlash is reaching feverish pitches throughout the various states where the states turn blue. You see all of these efforts to roll back voting rights and really to target Black and brown people. And that's a shame in this country, and we should not allow that to happen. We have so many issues that we need to work on, including employment, health care, voting, immigration. The list goes on and on. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time and be able to focus on all of the things in order to make our country whole again. So I want to get in here and get to a point that all of you have mentioned. And absolutely right. There's a million things impacting people living in this country in a million different ways and a million different systems shifting and changing, halted in some cases, weakened in other cases, impacting the day-to-day life of people. You all have talked about a myriad of issues, right? And it's like the door has been opened. We got to keep that door open and have those issues and new leaders, young people coming through to make sure that there is systemic and structural change. But as we all know, that can take decades. I mean, in some cases, that takes a generation, if we're being honest with our American history. The EOs are definitely a big open door. The advocacy and continuing to push for that and continuing to remind people that there are elections more than just every four years in this country. There's local elections, city councils, school board, all of them. The question I think that most people who don't have to live this and are not blessed enough to work in this space on a day-to-day and advocate for a living want to know is, okay, that all sounds great. When is that actually going to impact me? Big ideas and these big system changes, when are they actually going to make my life better? What are some of those actions that could really start to impact people in their day-to-day? So time's up. You know, we were founded out of the moment of sexual harassment three years ago with Harvey Weinstein. And we still stand for survivor justice. But we also imagine a world where it doesn't happen in the first place. So that's why we're working for safe, fair, dignified work for everyone. I believe we're at a transformational moment where, Vanessa, actually, the decades-long work that we've been trying to do without success has an opportunity to make a huge leap forward. Because Mm. what the pandemic has done, it's kind of equalized the struggle for everyone. Like up and down the wage scale, everybody's kid is home from school. Everybody's trying to figure out how to do Zoom calls and homeschooling and care for an elderly parent who might have gotten COVID or is living in a nursing home. Everyone's experiencing it. Employers, right, are experiencing being unable to field enough workers on their factory floors. They're telling folks like the Wall Street Journal, I don't have enough workers because they're home with caregiving responsibilities. Mm. There is an awareness on these issues that has never existed before that will really directly impact people. You know, the 136 million workers in this country who do not have sick leave. A single day of guaranteed permanent paid sick leave right now in the middle of a pandemic, right? All of those workers who don't have flexibility, don't have paid leave, don't have access to quality care for their loved ones. We can change all of that and directly affect people's lives. 
It is very bipartisan. You know, we did a survey in December with Caring Across Generations that showed not only do nine out of 10 Democrats support a comprehensive caregiving plan, eight out of 10 Republicans support it. So we can go into those states as our first toehold that LaShawn talked about, right? Into those purple, red states and demonstrate to folks this is going to help them. You know, when Florida, the very same November 3rd election this past time, when Florida voted to reelect Donald Trump, they also voted to increase the minimum wage, right? When we can get to those issues, I think we can cross that blue-red divide and get more people to understand that these are issues that will change their lives and get to their employers. So the other thing that people don't have to wait for is it's not all about Washington and it's not all about your state capital. You can go to your employer. Employers themselves have the ability to put in paid leave. They don't have to wait for the federal government. They don't have to wait to put sick leave in. They don't have to wait to do pregnancy accommodations for their pregnant workers. Workers can do that and advocate for that for themselves right now with their employers and just be part of this wave of change that I think and I hope is going to flow through our economy. Monica, in your work, we continuously have questions about Hyde. We're continuously pushing back against this idea that federal funding pays for abortion services or that nobody ever wants to say the word abortion. They divide it however they can divide it by community, by religion, by geography. When you think about what could be really helpful to women now, and I realize I'm asking you a very big question, (laughs) but just in thinking about the decades of work you've been doing, and if you could wave that wand to impact women today, what would that be? Oh, giving me a wand? That's a very fun and scary thing. (laughs) Um, I really, I think you raise a really good point even in your question, right? Like this topic of abortion. It's such a moral issue. It's a faith-based issue. Like people feel so many different kinds of ways when we mention the word abortion. And so in order for us to even help people understand that abortion is healthcare, because that is what we know that it is, we have to peel back these layers of stigma and trauma that has come up because of the way that this word has been wielded around and how our opposition has worked very seriously and intentionally for decades to make sure that this word in particular continues to hold so much negative weight. And so if I had a wand, I would do a lot of things. But in particular about this issue, I would just, you know, you remember in the movie Men in Black when they put the little thing up and it's like it went zoop and it like took all of it out of your head. I would just take all of that away from folks. Can we stop thinking about the word as such a negative word? It is a healthcare. It is a choice that people make whenever they need to make it for themselves, for whatever reason that they make in it. It is their decision. And I think, you know, one of the things that really came up for me, especially during the failed coup with the crazy white supremacists that tried to take over our capital, and folks were like, oh my God, did you see the look on their faces? Did you see these people? Those weren't new faces to some of us who do this work in sexual right. health. Those are the same people that we see outside of our abortion clinics. They're the same people who are coming at us on social media, who were sending nasty, ridiculous letters to our offices. This has been something that those of us who do work in particular around abortion access in this country have been dealing with forever, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And as a Black woman doing this work, it's even more of a crazy intersection of like, you know, the Black genocide community saying that Black women are having too many abortions. I was like, well, are we having too many babies or not enough babies? I don't know what you want us to do. Like this control of our womb is absolutely insane. 
and the fact that people have the audacity to think that they have the ability to make decisions for other people or to dictate how people make decisions. So that's what I would do with that wand. I would like flash that light to give people back their ability to make their own decisions and to not allow the years of propaganda that's been spewed at us from our opposition to continue to take hold to people because this is one of those divisive issues that we just have to take off of the table. And again, we can't get to this place of healthcare for all, including sexual and reproductive health. And so we are able to really remove that stigma and take that away. All three of you have hit on the white supremacist insurrection. And let's be really clear. That's what that was. We all saw the images. If you had the opportunity to see Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's testimony about how she lived that and how it brought back trauma for her. I think it's vital that people really understand this wasn't just a day at the Capitol. What happened is not just a normal day in D.C. And for those of us who live in D.C., I love this city. We continue to see National Guard on our streets. We continue to see fencing around our beautiful Capitol and our mall and all of these areas. While we can acknowledge the damage that was done, we're all they're not going to win. Like they are not going to win. And part of that is continuing to hold these people accountable. But I want to talk to LaShawn a bit about the work that you do on the Hill when you could actually physically go to the Hill. How can the Biden administration govern while dealing with these Republican insurrectionists and still having such a slim lead in order to move things forward? I think that the Biden administration has pretty much allowed Congress to do its thing while providing support. You know, fortunately, we have the Department of Justice who is looking into all of the things that happened. And let me just name that had those folks who broke into the Capitol been people of color, black and brown people, the situation in terms of casualties would be completely different. Let's name that. If you're pepper spraying a nine-year-old, you can only imagine what would happen if there was an insurrection and there were African-American, Black and Brown people that were engaged there. So I'm naming that. We also don't do that. Sorry, I just want to come in and say we don't do that. We peacefully protest. We do not. We fill streets. Even with the fact that we don't do that, there is a huge military presence. We have peaceful protests and there's a huge military presence, a way overreaction Mm -hmm. to any protest that we have. The disparities and the disparate treatment in terms of how people of color are treated in this country when they decide to raise their voice is something that we need to name and deal with in a very serious way. So I don't know that in terms of your question about what the Biden administration is doing, they are juggling multiple balls, right? So they're allowing Congress to move forward with their impeachment. You know, they're trying to hold various officials accountable, but they're allowing Congress to take the lead there. And for those individuals who need to be prosecuted, they are trying to bring them to justice. And so I think that's exactly what they need to be doing. I don't know that there's anything more that they need to do at this moment. They're focusing on the things that they have to focus on right now. And I think COVID is at the top. One of the major issues that they are working on, too, is trying to fill their cabinet, right? So in order for DOJ to function and hold folks accountable, they need to have a functioning cabinet. 
one of the things that the Biden administration is working on is trying to make sure that they fill those slots. And I am very pleased that our former president and yes. CEO, Vanita Gupta, has been nominated for Associate Attorney General at DOJ. And we know that she will do a fantastic job there. And so we're very proud of her. Also proud of Kristen Clark, who has been nominated to be the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division. Extremely pleased about that. So we have civil rights champions who are in the fight mm-hmm. and who will be holding leadership positions. And we feel like I can sleep even better with them in place. So there are various mechanisms that have been put in place to really address some of the issues that we're seeing. But if I could pivot for a moment to kind of follow up on some of the things that Monica and Tina said, just want to offer a few observations. And that is Please. that COVID has really unveiled some really deep inequities. And there are clear lessons to be learned as a result. As I said before, I don't think we will see the full impact of COVID for years to come, but there is an opportunity for course correction. I know that there have been opportunities, and I think the Biden administration, as well as members of Congress, are trying to push a social safety net to help people in this really critical moment. One of the lessons that I see is that we cannot go back to the status quo. We can't do the same things that we've always done. We can't play around the edges and do like a window dressing and a window treatment, Mm -hmm. we have this opportunity to really deal with root causes that will address some of the systemic racist issues that we have seen for many, many years and the inequities across the board. That is with the LGBT community. That is with every community of color, for the Native community. Like we really need to wrestle with some of these issues. And I'll give you like an example you know, you've heard quite a bit about the racial disparities as it relates to COVID and how African-Americans and other communities of color have suffered at a higher rate than white people living within our borders. Yes. Well, you know, there's a reason for that. I lived in Newark, New Jersey for a couple of years before coming here, and there was not a grocery store within the city limits, a grocery store for 10 years. So there were all of these smaller places where you could get chips and sodas, you know, all of the things that are unhealthy for you. And then we wonder why these communities, Newark is predominantly African-American, we wonder why their health is compromised. It is things like that. There has been a starvation and a lack of investment in communities like Newark. And that Newark is not unique. You find that across the country. And I think we have an opportunity here to rethink how we do investments and do it in a strategic way that uplifts all communities to give them an opportunity to thrive as everyone else. Thank you so much for that, LaShawn. Absolutely, 100%. It is in our history. These systems are set up deliberately. They're doing what they were set up to do. And so people now acting shocked. That's not right. You need to read a book. I also want to hit the point about Vanita being at the Department of Justice. (gasps) Now, I myself have had one-on-one check-ins with Miss Vanita Gupta, and she is not going to play. And so I am thrilled she is there. Can we also really recognize that Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark are the first women of color to be in these top positions. Snapping it up. Snapping it up. (laughs) But I just, not to be a broken record, we got to advocate for them, right? Because they're not confirmed yet. They're not in yet. They're not confirmed yet. That civil rights position is become a political football in the past, right? Yes, yes. Our Obama nominees didn't get through. So we have got to stand behind Kristen and stand behind Vanita 
and advocate strongly for their confirmation and make sure they get through. And, you know, women like Neera Tandon at OMB, who looks to be the target for the right in all of these. This has been my new mantra, right? It's like, you cannot go home. I know you're tired after November (laughs) 3rd, but nobody can go home. We have got to stay on these issues. And how do we hold people accountable in red states? The people in red states need to start speaking out. Even moderate Republicans who cannot tolerate what happened on January 6th, then say something. Say something. Don't let your Republican congressperson get away with what they're doing in D.C. because they think you're not looking, right? They think you're not paying attention. Exactly. You know, to add on to something that LaShawn said in, in your question around what can the Biden administration do, I think language is so important right now. So like you said, Tina, like people need to use their voice and speak up. I need to hear this administration call this what it was. I think I've only heard President Biden use the word white supremacist one time when thinking Mm. when talking about what happened on January 6th. I think the more that we actually start to name things for what they are and to Mm -hmm. push this administration to actually call these things out, that is something I, I, as a Black woman in the United States of America, need to see and need to hear from those folks who are moving into these positions. I don't want people to mince words. I don't want people to play the political pitter-patter with each other anymore. We need people in there, like so many of the ones that we see championing for us already, but we need folks really speaking truth to power in these positions of power. If that's not what you can come with, then I don't need you to be there. So I think that's just something else I need to see. This is the administration that can absolutely do that. And they have to, they have to, to. because it's been put right in front of our face. To piggyback on what Monica said, I think she's absolutely right about addressing these, like naming what we're seeing and calling it for what it is. But, you know, it's so often a policy solution that's offered is a study or a commission. And so I just want to make sure that one of the things that we do, in addition to pushing folks to name what we're experiencing and name the problems that we see, so actually to put legislation and policy in place that actually act that will actually remedy some of the issues and not study it to death or talk about it to death, but to actually do something that will help resolve the issue in a meaningful way. Well, I want to say thank you again so much to the incredible Monica, Tina, and LaShawn for joining us on Pod for the Cause. Father, Father, we don't need to escalate. Thank you for listening to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at Pod for the Cause or text Civil Rights to 40649 to sign up for updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Vanessa Gonzalez. Oh.